0: know we haven't done the podcast in a while but like it's just we haven't you know we haven't been playing a lot of magic lately in song, in on okay yeah okay we've been playing a bit more but here here listen i'll do another podcast once sam starts streaming again there's just no way Re- wait what in song, in on more... oh uh, i i guess Hi, welcome to the Judge Tower podcast.
1: <laughs> you really didn't have to call me out like that.
0: <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> but I did. My Thank name you. is Jan, and with me is once again Sam. Humble Greek is streaming again. Sophalis, <laughs> how's it going?
1: Uh, it's going, it's going for sure. Pretty hyped. Uh, it was long overdue since our last episode, so I'm pretty excited to be back here and recording again.
0: It's the first one of uh, 2022. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, it's March. well, it might have been released in 2022, right. but yes, wow. the year is 2022, right? I'm not like
1: stupid. <laughs> no, no, you're good, you're good. Okay, okay. Both can be true though.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to call me out like that. <laughs> Today's episode, going back to our roots about not talking about cards. I we're we're still gonna do that, but we're gonna go over common lessons to learn in Judge Tower. That's right. Judge Tower isn't just for crapping all over your friends and causing them pain. You can learn something from it.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And we we have talked about some interactions before, but this episode is really going to be, it's going to put this all into one and kind of condense it all into just one episode that people can just listen to for this very specific topic. Uh, It does come up a lot uh, in our episodes, just given the nature uh, of what we do here. But we are uh, just going to put everything into one and rock it.
0: Yeah, we aim to please. Yeah. What's not pleasing is the recent vehicle rules changes that have happened. Good boy. With the new. Yeah, with the new set, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, not Neon Destiny or anything <laughs> like that. So in Kamigawa Duck Dynasty, we have uh, <laughs> a new rules change. It's very minor, never came up said Wizards of the Coast, and they were basically correct. It's the f- rule that vehicles can now no longer crew themselves.
1: Yeah. So th- this is something that probably almost never came up in Constructed. Uh, not too many opportunities, or t- not too many situations where you would want to tap your own vehicle creature to crew itself. Uh, but it was great in Judge Tech. It, it, it was really good. You look at a card like Fleet Wheel Cruiser, which I believe has an enter the battlefield Effects It does. Uh, so Fleet Wheel Cruiser from Kaladesh. Uh, so it's a four mana artifact vehicle, 5 3, Trample Haste. It uh, has crew 2, and when it enters the battlefield, it becomes an artifact creature until end of the turn. So if you put this into play in Judge Tower, you would put it in, into play, its trigger would happen, and then you would tap it to crew itself. You it didn't have any other creatures. Uh, that could crew it with the ETB troop the instead. Uh, but that is no longer the case. That is no longer how it works. It can now no longer uh, crew itself. It's still a
0: decent card, but yeah. it definitely has lost the main way it has gotten people.
1: yeah, it might still get people.
0: I'm gonna keep it in for now just yeah. to see if uh, just to see if it it's still worth it.
1: See might take it up, though,
0: yeah, but it was nice while it lasted indeed uh another change that's happened not really a change per se but one of the mechanics in kamigawa neon dynasty uh was modified creatures modified creatures are creatures that have a counter on them or equipped or they have an aura on them that belongs to that creature's controller
1: is it any counter
0: any counter yeah could be a menace, could be a plus one, plus one. Could be what about a
1: slime one, counter?
0: That will modify it.
1: It does modify
0: it? Dang. It does modify it. Yep. It is Love any slime
1: counter. slime counters here. Yep.
0: Yeah, which is cool and all. But one of the playtest cards, Luvac the Aberrant, says it has protection from modified creatures. And in reminder text, it says modified creatures have a power, toughness, or ability different than their printed version. That's very different.
1: It's very different.
0: It's very different. So I was wondering if that modified creatures on Luvac is now changed. Uh, But taking a look at Gatherer, it says in a ruling, Luvac the Aberrant uses the term modified in a way that is different from cards in the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty expansion. All of the rulings below, and referring to its own version of modified, uh, apply only to Luvac. Uh-huh. So now we have two different versions of modified creatures. Is it yeah. worth it to even keep it in anymore if it causes this much confusion?
1: So so here's my thing. Here's my take on this, right? I think the effect is great. It's unfortunate that it has the same wording. I, I think what it does is really good for Judge Tower. But But the whole point is to use Judge Tower to apply situations that would happen in a real or that could happen in a real game of magic whether that be commander or any format really uh, and just understand sort of how the rules work now that there is an actual definition for modified creatures i i think the fact that there are two separate rule sets and one is not applicable to any real format uh, i think i would probably not include it in my tower just because you're not it might do more harm than good. You don't want to be confusing people, right? Like this. This episode is is about the common lessons to learn in Judge Tower and learning that the format sucks because of this weird corner case where there's two definitions for the same keyword. Like it, it's just not fun. Yeah, I agree. if they if they made like a like a new Luvac with without the word modified on it, then I think it could be better.
0: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I agree. Uh, Luvac. You will be missed,
1: Indeed.
0: but not missed for too long, though, because now we're going to head into our topic here, the common lessons to learn in Judge Tower. It turns out when you play a lot of Judge Tower, you notice people losing in the same way quite often. And honestly, when you see that kind of thing, it's it's a sign that there is a an aspect of judging or playing that... A lot of people can really improve in, like knowing specific rules or uh, for like rulings if you're judging or like playing around. So I I think Judge Tower has a lot to give in this aspect.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's head into the first one. Very specific trigger intervening ifs. We've definitely talked about intervening ifs before. Um, An example. Yeah. An example um, is one on. Uh, Firemain Angel. This is probably the worst offending intervening if trigger I've ever seen in my entire life.
1: It's quite brutal, yeah. It's so brutal. So just as a just as a reminder, uh, an intervening if trigger is a trigger that meets a certain requirement to trigger, as most triggers do. Uh, but it needs to meet that upon when it would go onto the stack. Uh, i.e. when it would trigger and then also when it would resolve it will not resolve uh, or its effect will not happen if that certain condition is not met uh, at the beginning and then as it would resolve correct
0: Um, so this this trigger here on fireman angel reads at the beginning of your upkeep if fireman angel is in your graveyard or on the battlefield you gain one life or you may gain one life uh, don't tell me what to do but it also has a reanimate effect on itself. So on your upkeep, you, the trigger goes on the stack uh, because the initial condition is met. And then it, you can activate its reanimate ability to bring it back to the battlefield. And then the the trigger on resolution, or when it tries to resolve, checks the condition again, sees that Main Angel isn't in the graveyard anymore, and then the ability is, fizzles. And is removed from the stack without resolving.
1: Uh, So this is this this is it is brutal, but it is good to know, right? Like that's a really good lesson to learn about intervening ifs. Another lesson is that it is notably different from a card like Triumph of Ferocity or Quakebringer. So these are cards, and I'll I'll read them in just a sec. Uh, these are cards that kind of look like they might be Intervening Ifs, but they don't meet the exact formatting or the exact uh, like syntax and wording uh, to be an Intervening If Trigger, such that an Intervening If Trigger has its clause. So it says the thing, then it has comma, if the condition, comma, do the thing, right? But you look at a card like Triumph of Ferocity, which is a two green enchantment, that reads, at the beginning of your upkeep, draw a card if you control the creature with the greatest power or tied for the greatest power. So so this will always trigger. And it will always resolve. It just might not do anything. It, it checks the greatest power as it would as the ability would resolve. So if you respond to the trigger and giant growth one of your creatures so then the condition is true, you will draw the card. Which if it were an intervening, if it wouldn't have been able to trigger in the first place.
0: Yeah, very very different in the way that it triggers. And then Quakebringer reads, at the beginning of your upkeep, Quakebringer deals two damage to each opponent. This ability triggers only if Quakebringer is on the battlefield, or if Quakebringer is in your graveyard and you control a giant. So in a way it's similar to Fireman Angel, where it's if it's in the graveyard and you control a giant, the trigger will go onto the stack, but it will not be removed from the stack if say your graveyard gets Kai's guiled, or your giant yes. gets bolted, or anything like
1: that, yeah. So we have we have two kind of examples there. Like Triumph of Ferocity will always trigger, and the result of it will depend on what the board looks like when it resolves. Quakebringer uh, needs specific requirements to trigger in the first place, uh, and will always resolve unless obviously it gets countered or removed from the stack. It, it'll always resolve uh, once it has triggered. And learning these different sorts of interactions with, with triggers. Like, these are common triggers even within Magic. You look at Modern, you have Davriel, and you have Valakut as intervening if Like, it comes up. And, and knowing how to interact with them, and what you can do, and what sort of agency you have to interact with different types of triggers, both as a player and as a judge. It goes a long way.
0: Yeah, Valakut and the Molten Pinnacle is the big one for Modern. Yes. At least at the moment. Knowing... When to kill the opponent's dryad of the Elysian Grove is yeah. uh, something that you should know if you want to have some success against Amulet Titan. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, next we have declaring targets for triggers. Every, a lot of these are
0: related to triggers, turns out.
1: Yeah, triggers triggers are not very easy. It is also a very common points in Judge Tower. So when you like the timing for when you declare targets in a trigger, uh, you you declare it before the trigger would actually go onto the stack. Yeah, I guess as onto it stack, goes on to it the goes stack as it goes onto the stack, yes. Uh, that is relevant in modern or, right now too. Is
0: is that true? Uh I mean there's a time when yeah, so sorry, there's a time when triggers activate or yeah. get triggered, right? But they don't go on to the stack until like
1: right before a player would get priority. Yes. So if you have an effect that's kind of doing a long thing it creates sort of a queue of triggers. Uh, So you won't actually pick the target until you finish resolving that ability or spell or whatever the effect is. Uh, And then right before you would get priority, you would start stacking your triggers and then uh, picking your targets at that point.
0: Yeah. An example, um, this isn't really played in Judge Tower, but I think it's funny, is Goblin Charbelcher. Uh, it's a 4-mana artifact, and it has 3 and tap. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a land card. Goblin Charbelcher deals damage equal to the number of non-land cards revealed this way to any target. If the revealed land card was a mountain, it does double damage, and yada yada. So, notably, when you activate this, you declare the target first, um, and then start flipping cards. So, yes. part of part of you, a big part of you, just wants to flip over lands, or flip over cards until you hit a land card, and then look on the table and start thinking about which is the best target to hit um, based on the amount of cards you revealed. That's not the way this card works, unfortunately. Correct. Otherwise it would be very good.
1: Notably, obviously, Goblin Builder is not a trigger, it is an activated ability, but, but same sort of thing, right? Picking targets for spells and abilities, the timings for it. Uh, another another example Besides Goblin Charbelcher for activated abilities, uh, would be if you have a wasteland, uh, you can you you pick the target before you pay costs, and sacrificing the wasteland is part of the cost. So if you put a wasteland into play, it can target itself. The ability won't resolve because you'll sacrifice the the target uh, as part of paying the cost. But you can wasteland your own wasteland with itself.
0: Yes, which is a common play in. Judge Tower, and that's it.
1: Uh, it. It comes up in Legacy sometimes, too.
0: Does it? Oh, yeah, I guess because back to basics. Or, no, price, price of Progress.
1: progress. Price, price of, of Progress is. is a card that deals damage to you equal to the number of... or two damage to you for each non-basic land you control. So sometimes you'll see people wasteland their own uh, uh, wasteland in response just to take less damage.
0: I really said back to basics, didn't I? That was wild. <laughs> I guess an example of... Uh, Trigger ability with the targeting thing is like Eternal Witness and the Ephemerate uh, shenanigans. Uh, We'll go over that. Eternal Witness, uh, everyone's favorite. One green green for a 2-1 when it comes into play. uh, Return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Um, And Ephemerate is uh, is a white instant. Uh, Exile target card you control, then return to the battlefield under its owner's control. And it has rebound. If you cast it from your hand, exile it as it resolves. At the beginning of your next upkeep, you may cast this card from Exile without paying its mana cost. So the common thing with the Eternal Witness ephemerate loop is uh, when you cast ephemerate from Exile on your upkeep, you can target the Eternal Witness. Ephemerate's effect will happen. The Eternal Witness will get exiled and return to the battlefield. And then the trigger happens. It enters the battlefield, but it hasn't gone onto the stack yet. And then ephemerate as it finishes resolving, goes to the graveyard because that's what spells do, and then the target for Eternal Witness at that point gets declared, and you can target the Ephemerate in the graveyard, even though the Ephemerate technically wasn't in the graveyard when the Eternal Witness entered the battlefield because you didn't have to. You declared the targets after the Ephemerate goes into the graveyard from resolving.
1: Yep, that's a really good example. There are a lot of. Uh... A lot of situations where where this could come up in, in Modern as well. You look at another common one would be like Cultivator Colossus, which is a four Ugh. green, green, green plant beast creature. Uh, star, star power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control. It uh, has a triggered ability when Cultivator Colossus enters the battlefield. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield, then draw a card, then repeat this process. Or if you do, draw a card and repeat this process. Uh, so you have an effect like Valakut, which uh, which reads whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, if you control five other mountains, deal three damage to any target. So if you have a Val- like an active Valakut, and then you start putting mountains into play uh, with Cultivator Colossus, you'll actually get to choose your targets uh, once Cultivator Colossus the ability has finished resolving. So they'll all go on the stack, and at that point, you'll get to choose the targets. Just because they they go into like a queue, like I was trying to like I was saying earlier. And then before you would get priority, you would then stack those triggers and then pick your kids.
0: So what happens Okay. Uh, if you have an mountain, it a single mountain, mountain, a single mountain, yes. and you cast Cult of Air Colossus, right? Okay. And then you uh you start playing Valakut, Yeah. And then follow it up with four mountain or five mountains.
1: Five mountains. Uh, there will yep. only be one trigger. And this is notably different. And we're, this is a bit of a derailment, uh, but these are good interactions to know. So the reason why it's different than, say, Scape Shift, uh, the common interaction with Scape Shift is that you sacrifice seven lands, go get Valak, get six mountains, deal 18 too. Uh, with Cultivator Colossus, it works a little bit different. The lands actually enter the battlefield one at a time, so you will only get the one trigger or however many triggers... Or uh, you have mountains uh, after the fifth one, and the reason for that is because you, you you put your land in play, you draw a card, you put another one in play, so the the trigger won't have been able to been put on the stack uh, anyways because it still the requirement still checks when it would happen, and this is mm. this is where it gets kind of weird. the the condition for a trigger is checked. When it would happen on the battlefield, even if you're in the middle of resolving a spell, rebuild. the, the yes. condition for a trigger is when it enters the battlefield, right? Uh, yeah. And when that mountain enters the battlefield, Valakit only sees one, two, three other mountains. Uh, until okay. the sixth mountain enters, then the damage starts. Uh, then the triggers start, quote, well, queuing.
0: Yeah. Okay. That that makes that makes sense. Uh, it's like it's like the Eternal Witness thing. Triggers happen even in the middle of resolving spells and abilities.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So uh, thank you for listening to the Modern Tower Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: right. it, it makes sense, right? The the reason, again, like, I, I sound like a broken record. The reason we, we play Judge Tower, obviously it's fun, but the whole point is to try and get better. So uh, get better at magic in these sort of situations that, that do come up in, in popular formats. And understanding these interactions in modern might help you build a judge tower that has sort of interactions that that feature those uh situations, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um next up, we have turn sequence. Everyone knows the great shirt. I think it's loading ready run that sells it. And it's untap and upkeep and draw and main mm. and combat and main and end and cleanup. When you play Judge Tower, you really get to know the turn order and all the steps and phases in it, um, and when exactly you get priority. Notably, you never get priority in untap, and you rarely get it in cleanup. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is a trigger from discarding cards to hand size.
1: Yeah, that's the only one I can think of as well.
0: Like, shenanigans have to be going on for... For your, you to get priority in in the cleanup step,
1: but then after that happens, there's then another cleanup step, which yes is only-
0: yeah. good good to note, and also um as I learned uh, I believe a couple of years ago uh there is no such thing as an end of main phase <laughs> where you get priority to literally cast instance for some reason I don't know its it's it's just weird stuff, but yeah. it's it's good to know. And combat. Combat is very interesting. A lot of steps happen in the combat phase. Yes. Uh, we have the, and let's see if I can get this right, we have the beginning of combat step. Yes. We have the attacker step. It's, uh,
1: the declare attacker step, if uh, we're being yes. pedantic.
0: We are, and we are. Uh, the declare blocker step. We have combat damage, but if there's first strike, there I believe there's a second round of combat, da- the combat damage step.
1: Yeah, there's a first strike combat damage step, uh, which only happens if there's a creature with first strike or double strike. And then there's a combat damage step. Yeah, uh, which is just the regular casing for your combat.
0: Damage. You did get priority in that
1: step, right? I'm not in like the even... first strike combat. Da- yes. Or, yeah. You like, get Priority it... in, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then an end of combat step. Notably, there have been recent happenings with players moving to combat, and what exactly that means.
1: Yeah, so so tournament shortcuts, um, and, and this is not something I think you should hold your Judge Tower players to, but uh, understanding combat and exactly how it works and sort of the, the tournament shortcuts for moving to combat and what they mean. Uh, very important. And it, it comes up a lot in judge tower, uh, specifically with when you can do things in combat in constructive play, because of how tournament shortcuts work, if, if you're trying to judge or even if you're playing, you need to know sort of what your opponent means when they say certain things like go to combat or move to attacks, meaning they don't intend to do anything in the begin combat step. Uh, as far as in Judge Tower, we can use some recent examples uh, from Kemigo Neon, and uh, Neon Dynasty. Ninjutsu is an activated ability on creatures that reads something like, return an unblocked creature you control to its owner's hand, and then put this creature into play tapped and attacking.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, notably... Uh, notably, returning the unblocked attacker is
1: a is part of the cost. It is part of the cost, yes. So, so picture this scenario, right? You are attacking with a one-one creature that reads, "Whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card." And you're 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 playing Judge Tower, and you deal the damage, and then you draw a card, and it happens to be a creature with Ninjutsu. Now, combat damage has already happened, and we're currently in the combat damage step, and there there's a weird timing both in the combat damage step and even in the end combat step where even though it's already dealt damage, your creature is still considered to be attacking uh, and unblocked so you can ninjitsu yes. yes, so you can nin- use ninjitsu on your attacking creature after it's already dealt combat damage so th- it's not a super common thing to come up and construct it in my but knowing how. Like, the status of a permanent uh, when it's considered attacking and unblocked, uh, knowing when during the turn, uh, which is all of combat, that that it is considered attacking, is very important. You might get people with this Ujutsu Tower, and then they'll learn, right? That's the whole point.
0: You know what's cool? What's cool? uh, You can ninjutsu a first strike creature, and then the ninja will hit in the next combat damage step.
1: Oh, that's really neat.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, that's,
1: that's really neat.
0: You get your first strike, and then you get you slap your ninja the deep hours in there, and then <laughs> you, you start drawing cards? Hmm. Yeah. That, that's good. That's good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So knowing the steps and phases of the turn, uh, they are obviously really important. On the L1 test, there's a... L- I can't speak too much, uh, but there's a big emphasis in the L1 preparation uh, on combats and the status of objects in combat and sort of the timings you can do things. Something we kind of skipped over earlier is that declaring attackers and declaring blockers is a turn-based action that happens before players receive priority in that step, just like drawing a card in your draw step. So it happens before anything else would happen in that step.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Didn't know that. That's, I well, didn't you know. know or, there did, you go.
0: Or did I know? Oh, I guess I, probably, I guess I definitely know now. You probably that, Yeah. <laughs> I, if I didn't know, I know now. So there we go.
1: So turn sequence. Uh, another, another big thing is priority and knowing when you can and should uh, cast spells, activate abilities, take special actions, turn-based actions. One of, one of my favorite examples is Warden of the First Tree.
0: So it is, a great, it, uh,
1: it, it is a great Judge Tower card. Now, I want to get the uh, exact Oracle text up here. So let me let me do that. There's a one green one. Uh, from top down order, it has an activated ability of one and then hybrid white black. Warden of the First Tree becomes a human warrior with base power and toughness three three, Then two and then two hybrid white black. If Warden of the First Tree is a warrior, it becomes a human spirit warrior with Trample and lifelink. Uh Then lastly, three and three hybrid white-black. Uh, if Warden of the First Tree is a spirit, put five 1-1 counters on it. Now, Jan, I have a question for you. Yeah, shoot. I control a 1-1 Warden of the First Tree. Okay. Can I activate its bottom ability to put five counters on it?
0: You absolutely can. Absolutely. It just doesn't do what you want it to do.
1: And why can I activate it?
0: Because the only cost to activate this ability is 3 and then the hybrid mana. Yes. It, it doesn't matter if it's a spirit or not, because it'll deal with that on the resolution of the ability.
1: Yeah, so this is a common effect. Uh, one of my favorite Judge Tower cards, I'll get back to Ward on the first stream, it's like one of my favorite Judge Tower cards Idle Thoughts, which is a 2-mana oh, yeah. enchantment with a 2-mana activated ability that reads, uh, draw a card if you have no cards in hand. Now, people won't activate it if they have cards in hand because they think they can't, but you can, right? Uh, what's important about activated abilities and their costs is where the colon is placed. The, the colon, everything before the colon is considered part of the cost. Everything after it is the effect. So I can activate Warden of the First Tree's bottom ability all I want. I just won't do anything if if it's not a spear. Now, in Judge Tower... As we know, we activated abilities from bottom-up order. So I have my Warden of the first tree. I will activate the bottom ability. It'll be on the stack. I will respond to it by activating its second ability. And then I will respond to that by activating its top ability. Now, what's funny is that because of how the stack works and how abilities resolve, or the stack resolves, the, the last ability activated will resolve first, and then all of the effects on Warden of the first tree will happen uh, the way you sort of want them to. <laughs> it'll become it'll first become a human warrior 3-3. Three, three. Uh then because it's a warrior, it'll gain trample and lifelink and then uh and become a spirit. And then because it's a spirit, you'll put the five one counters on it.
0: You know it's weird? What's weird? It's if you have the warden of the first tree and it's a human spirit warrior and it has five one counters on it, whatever, right? And you just activate the first ability. It just stops being a, a spirit. Uh, just a spirit in general. It yes. doesn't have trample, on It's just, it's just a guy.
1: It's just a homie. But...
0: It just gave it all up. Yep. Gave it all up to just, just have a good meal or something. <laughs> it's weird, but this is a bit different from like say a card like Living Twister. That's... Uh, well, not the. Well, Living Twister is interesting. It's a red, red, green, elemental 2-5. has two abilities. One and a red, discard a land card. That's the cost. Living Twister deals two damage to any target. And it has a second ability, green. That is the cost, to return a tapped land you control to its owner's hand. Yeah. So, let's talk about the first ability first, because uh, it's, it's just like, you need to be able to pay the costs, and you need a target. So... Not only is it about the cost, right? Like, it's, let's say everything on the battlefield is shroud. You can't activate the Living Twister's ability because there's nothing to uh, well, activate it on.
1: So, Jen, I have a, I, I have a question for you. Go on. If, if I don't have a land card in my head, can I activate Living Twister's top ability?
0: No, because it's part of the cost. It's like not having the mana in your mana pool to be able to activate. Or, notably... If you have zero life and are living by something like Angel's Grace or Phyrexian Unlife, you cannot pay life. You don't have
1: uh, so then the bottom ability, green colon, return a tap line you control to its owner's hand. Uh, what do I do if I can't target any of my tap lines?
0: Well, the ability resolves. Cause you're not targeting anything. It's just telling you to do something.
1: So then can I can I still return one of my Lands that have Shroud?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, really?
1: because it's Because it, it, well... it doesn't target?
0: Because it doesn't target. And that's the great thing about this card. Yes. It doesn't matter if you don't have lands, if you have all untapped lands, if your lands are tapped and have Shroud. Living Twister doesn't care. Yeah. It just it just activates the ability and then goes on in some your away. Yep.
1: Oh, yeah. you, you, you can always activate Living Twister's bottom ability if you can produce a green... Yeah. Uh, regardless of whether or not, like Jen said, whether or not you have lands that can be returned, mm-hmm. it doesn't target.
0: Yeah, and to, to really hammer this this cost thing, uh, we have two cards: Rummaging Goblin and Drowned Rasalka. Basically, they do the same thing. They it's discarding a card to draw a card. The only difference is Rummaging Goblin: the discard a card is before the colon, so it's a cost. It's something that you must do to put this ability on the stack. Whereas with Drowned or Salka, it's after the colon. Uh, it specifically says blue and sacrifice a creature to discard a card, then draw a card. So even if you have no cards in your hand, you can still activate the Drowned as assuming you have a creature to sacrifice, which it is. So, yeah. so you discard no cards, you do as much as the ability tells you to do, and then you follow up by drawing a card.
1: I, I gotta say, I am actually impressed at how obscure of an example you found.
0: Okay. <laughs> the card is so, so bad. It's... <laughs> it's it, you want to know how I found it?
1: How did you find it?
0: I I went to Scryfall, and I went into the oracle text to try and find colon discard a card. <laughs> right? Oh. This is like one of the only creatures to do it. And I'm yeah. kind of annoyed by it.
1: Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, not often do you have the ability to discard a card and then draw a card as part of uh, a cost, per se. Uh, or sorry, not as uh, as part of the resolution of an activated ability. It's The discard a card is often part of the cost. So you don't just net cards if you help hellbent. So yeah. I do understand how you got there, but I do still find it funny because that card instead of a three for one now just becomes a two for one if, if yeah. you're hellbent.
0: <laughs> it, it's it's like it's like you know tormenting voice versus like faithless salvaging or whatever. You can yeah. come up with so many examples of this, yeah. But you definitely, uh, uh, it's something that you definitely
1: want to know. Yeah. Uh, one of one of the biggest things for level 1 judges, is not, not so much layers, uh, specifically layer 7, which is the power and toughness modifications. Yeah,
0: it, it turns out that they really want you to care about combat. Yes. It's complicated. Combat it is
1: complicated, yeah. Uh, so layer 7 has A through E, so it has five layers, five sub-layers, rather, and, and they apply it in this order. So a creature's power and toughness will first look at effects from power and toughness affecting uh, character characteristic defining abilities. Look at Tarmogoyf, right? That's a very popular one. Very uh, popular. Applying after that is any power and toughness setting effects. Uh, so all power and toughness effects that set either power and toughness to both a specific number of value. Uh, or sorry, that set either or both to a specific number of value
0: yeah i e something like scale up or sudden spoiling
1: yes, so target creature becomes a three warden of the first tree uh becomes a three three well actually warden of the first tree will be uh, a really good example
0: yeah ab- uh, absolutely
1: <laughs> yeah uh any power slash toughness changing effect that doesn't set so giant growth gives plus three plus three that's applied after power and toughness setting effects. Power and toughness changes from counters, apply after all of that, so plus one, plus one counters. And then at the very end of everything, uh, effects that switch power and toughness. So let's look back at Warden of the First Tree. It's a 1-1. Then it becomes a 3-3. Then it becomes an 8-8 because you put five counters on it. And then you uh, set its power and toughness to be a 1-1 again somehow. Now now it's a 1-1, but it still has its five counters on it. So it's a 6-6. Six, six. Yep, that reads. Uh, it does read. Now, a common effect that might happen in modern is scale up uh, in Infect- is a card that sees playing Infect. Now, in modern, you will often scale up your Glistener Elf or Blighted Agent or whatever to make it a 6-4. Just sets its power and toughness to be 6-4. And then you will Might have Old set it to give it 4-4. Plus four, plus four. And if you do it in that order, it becomes a 10-8 and all is fine. Or, yeah, 10-8, all is fine, and then they die, sure. Oh, but, but if what if
0: it's in the other order? What
1: if it's in the other order? So now, I might have old Kuroso my 1-1 to make it a 5-5. I then scale up it to make it a base 6-4 after I've already given it plus 5 plus 5. Now, logically, a lot of players who don't know this interaction or how this works might just assume that, well... It was a 5-5, five, five, and well, now it's a 6-4. But because the scale-up still applies in an er- earlier sub-layer, uh, it will become a 6-4, and then the plus-4 four, plus-4 four will be applied. So those two cards, you don't actually need to do it in any specific
0: order. Yeah, and then we have the, the switching, power and toughness. It, it just applies to basically every effect.
1: Right. So I have my 1-2 creature. Uh, I then cast Inside Out to switch its power and toughness until end of turn. Uh, it's a 2-1 now, right? Now I cast a spell that gives it plus 0, oh, plus 5. Is it a 2-6? Or is it a 7-1? Now logically, again, it would make sense that it would be a 2-6. but
0: When has magic ever made sense? <laughs> uh,
1: because of uh, layer 7 and its sub-layers the plus O, plus five effect will actually function as a plus
0: five, plus O. Right. And like, it might not make sense in this example, say, but when there are so many effects that are happening at the same time, you need something like this to like kind of hold everything together and need some sort of system. And you get to learn more of the layers, not just layer seven, obviously, but layer seven is kind of the, the first one that you, care about i guess um because like most games of magic will involve combat and power and toughness of some kind and then when you learn that you can go into the other layers right it's kind of like a stepping stone
1: yeah so layer seven is uh as i was explaining it, it kind of is a gateway drug into the other layers once you understand layer seven it'll start to make sense why If you make uh, Dryad of the Elysian Grove lose all of its abilities, why it would still apply its effects. And and the reason for that is, in short, because Dryad's effect happens in a layer before it would lose its abilities. That really doesn't make a lot of sense. But once you start looking at layer seven and getting an understanding for that, because these are the most common situations to come up, so once you start understanding these, uh, then you'll start understanding. Layers on a deeper level. And and these sorts of things can come up in Judges to, in judge Tower, right? You can put a card like Sigarda's Summons in, which is a 4 white white enchantment. That reads, creatures you control with 1-1 counters on them, have base power and toughness 4-4, have flying and are angels in addition to their other types. So they'll be often 5-5s five or bigger.
0: This, this card touches like three different layers at the same time. It does. It hits layer 4, type changing, hits layer 6. Ability adding in layer seven, power toughness. You know, just just for fun.
1: Just just for value. Man,
0: you ever just Oko a Micah sense lattice and then all uh. this later? <laughs> oh. oh boy, I got it. Go. <laughs> well, that that kind of lines up because we're kind of at the end of our of our lessons. Yeah,
1: I think that about wraps up. It definitely doesn't cover everything you can learn in Judge Tower, obviously.
0: Uh, no, but. this is the big ones this is the ones that you will find like the most useful to learn i want to say the ones that will come up often both in judge tower and in regular games of magic so um i find i find this is this is where judge tower shines i think is Mm -hmm. really teaching a lot of the good common lessons uh notably i did put Remembering triggers, but then Sam reminded me that no, no, we we just keep forgetting them. It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many triggers we we put onto the stack. We will always forget, and that's fine. You know, it's not about being perfect, but it is about growth and improving. And I find I forget just a just a few less triggers.
1: I've never missed a trigger in my life.
0: I wasn't gonna bring it up. (laughs) I wasn't gonna. (laughs) I wasn't going to, but eh, eh. <laughs> Sam Sam has forgotten triggers, but so have I. So it's fine. Once again, thank you for listening to another episode of the Judge Tower cast. To find us, we're on Twitter at Judge Towercast. Sam, once again, is streaming. It was a meme before, <laughs> basically, but now he actually does it. Twitch.tv do. slash Humble Greek for all of your variety streaming needs.
1: Yeah, you can find me there uh literally when I feel like it.
0: Yeah. No no set <laughs> schedule, but you know, it's just uh if you want to hang out at some point. Absolutely. And uh with that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Alright, Sam.
1: Yeah.
0: Here's today's sign off. Okay. All right. Back in 2020, um about a month I wanna say before the pandemic swept the world. We played, or I guess I played, and you judged, a Pioneer tournament.
1: I remember, in, Ed- in Edmonton.
0: Face-to-face Edmonton. Yes. I played 5-color NIV, sure as did. I am usually doing in most formats. The spicy 76-card list a 61-card main deck. That was great. But I made some really interesting choices with my sideboard.
1: Okay. It
0: involves quite a lot of one ofs of some weird cards. Yes. And I want to see if you know them. Alright, so let's do this. Let's see how much you know about random pioneer cards that were played in the sideboard of 5-color Niv. Okay. Alright, we'll start with my one of copy of infernal reckoning
1: infernal reckoning it's a black spell all right uh it's two mana no it's it's a removal spell you exile a creature with devoid
0: oh that's that's pretty close <laughs> all right infernal reckoning is a single black mana for an instant exile target colorless creature you gain life equal to its power
1: uh, uh, this was a colors. rare
0: this was yeah. a rare in M19
1: so this was get, this would have been good against the uh scissors decks right yes yes yeah. this
0: ah w- uh, that was my next question why mm. why did i play this card uh yeah infernal reckoning was uh very good against the uh, the uh, Scissors decks, the decks that animated their dark steel Citadels into 5-5 yeah. Indestructibles. Uh, it was also good against that. It's
1: also funny against Worldbreaker, which we're seeing some play. Yeah, man,
0: Worldbreaker uh, really wrecked me back in the day. Alright, yeah, follow Followed card. up. It, was... it has reached! Did you know that? <laughs> Holy crap! Wow. It has reach all the way towards the bottom of the card. Uh, next up, three copies of Thoughtseize. Oh, I know uh, what that globally. one does. Yeah, I think a lot of people know what that one does. Uh, for those who don't, what does it do? Uh, for that one person.
1: black. Uh, so it costs a single black, it's a sorcery. Mm-hmm. Uh, target player reveals their hand, you choose a non card from it, and then that player discards that card.
0: Yep, and you lose two life. And um, you lose two notably, life, yeah. yes. Nobly, target player uh, can come up. Uh, notably, I traded a deep fryer for two thought seizes to guess. my friend Lane. Yeah. That's gas. All right. Next up, Ractos's return.
1: Oh, that's easy. Uh, X black red. Ractos's return deals X damage to target player or planeswalker, and then that player or planeswalker's controller discards that many cards. Yes.
0: Uh, notably, only opponent or planeswalker. Oh, okay. I don't know if it targets uh let me just check Scryfall here because this is one of those weird cards where it's it printed I believe it faster. does target
1: planeswalkers now.
0: So you can yeah, so you can make yourself discard cards uh with this where in the past you couldn't, but that's just like Oh, oh wait, Ractus's
1: return can target your planeswalker?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ractus's return deals X damage to target opponent or planeswalker. That player or that planeswalker's controller discards X cards. That is a functional errata to this
1: card. Oh, that's target opponent or planeswalker. That player, yeah, right? or... so you can make yourself discard cards. That's yes, really funny.
0: That... Yeah, that's a functional change. Yep. And that doesn't come up uh, ever, but I'm I assume there's like. There there's gonna be like one one scenario where you may wanna make yourself discard cards and yeah. that's that's kinda weird, but neat. Um obviously you bring this against inverter of truth decks and control and really fun with Teferi Time Raveler.
1: Yeah, you could do it either just up.
0: people really find Teferi unfun, but I disagree. Uh next up we have a single copy of Rest in Peace.
1: Yep, one way. Uh, enchantment. when Rest in Peace enters the battlefield to exile all graveyards. Uh, if a card would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead.
0: Yep. Card or token, apparently. That's weird.
1: Card or token, yes. Uh, uh, that is relevant.
0: Yeah. That is relevant, very. Uh, next up, selesnia Charm. Oh boy. Single copy of selesnia Charm.
1: Target creature... So it's a green-white instant. Target creature gets plus three, plus three until end of turn. Uh, You can... Or you can make... So it's choose one, it's modal. Or you can make a three, three. Mm -hmm. uh, Green elephant. Or it's got to be like disenchant, right? Or you gain three life. Okay.
0: Okay. Here's what the card actually does. <laughs> Was I not even close? <laughs> you were close. So pr- like, strangely close, but far. Right. Uh, target creature gets plus two, plus two, and gains okay. trample until end of turn. Okay. okay. Or put a 2-2 white knight creature token with Vigilance onto the battlefield. Okay. Or exile target creature with power five or greater.
1: Yes. I can't believe I forgot about that mode.
0: This card... I don't know why... Um, I assume it was, like, it was very so flexible, like, you could bring it against a Scissors deck, you could, like, yeah. just bring it against Mono Red to to give yourself some sort of blocking presence. And it gave Niv Trample, mm-hmm. you know. An 8-8, flamp, an 8-8 Flample is pretty good. Yep. Uh, next up, we have a single copy of Thought Erasure.
1: Uh, Blue-Black. Sorcery. Target opponent reveals their hand. Uh, You choose an online card from it, and then they discard it, and then you surveil one. Perfect. Is it target Um, opponent or target player? Target opponent. Nice.
0: Um, This was basically my fifth copy of Thoughtseize, I believe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's been a couple years since I've seen this list. I thought it was funny. Next up, two copies of Voice of Resurgence.
1: Uh, It's a green-white 2-2 Elemental. Uh, Whenever Voice of Resurgence dies or an opponent casts a spell on your turn you make a green-white elemental creature token with power and toughness equal to the number of creatures you control.
0: Spot on. Uh, Looks like an elk and isn't. Man, remember when this was the most expensive card in Dragon's Maze?
1: Is it not anymore?
0: Uh, I think it still is, but I believe yeah. the second most expensive uh thing from Dragon's Maze was the token. Yes, and yes. that that was funny. Yeah,
1: and then they printed it a couple other times.
0: Yeah, it, it needed a reprint. Sorry, Dragon's Maze, you're <laughs> just not good value. So I played two of those along with a copy of Deafening Clarion.
1: Uh, one red, white. Uh, choose one or both. Uh, top one is it deals 3 damage to all creatures. Uh, bottom mode is creatures you control gain life until end of 2. If
0: you didn't activate both when you were activating the top one anyway, like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, like, seriously, come on. Just modes. go ham. Yeah. Notably, there was a thing on Arena where someone cast Stefan Clarion for the bottom mode and their opponent didn't notice, and then they sacked all their stuff to the Mayhem Devil. Oh. And then That's Death and rough. Clarion resolved, and the opponent was uh was absolutely wrecked. People really want to figure out a way to do that in paper. That's just called cheating, by the way. Don't be, like, putting your deafening Clarion out and then not saying the mode. Yeah. And then, yeah, just don't do that. Next up, two copies of <laughs> Mystical Dispute.
1: Uh two and a blue instant uh costs two less to cast if it's targeting a blue spell. Uh counter target spell unless it's controller pays three.
0: I have nothing to say about Mystical Dispute other than just ruthlessly efficient. (laughs) Two cards left, one copy of Questing Beast. Oh
1: no. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Two green green four four. right. Vigilance. Uh huh. Haste. Uh Uh-huh. Death Touch. Uh Uh-huh. Desert Trample. Vigilance Haste Death Touch. Okay. Uh, It cannot be blocked by creatures with power 2 or less. Uh Uh-huh. When it deals combat damage to a player, it deals that much damage to target Planeswalker that player controls. Are we done? Hang on. Are we done? So it's a 4 4. I said it's keywords. Can't be blocked except by creatures' with power to realize. I think we're done.
0: Okay. You missed one thing.
1: Oh, no. And I'm not going to kill Oh, the I, I remember. I remember.
0: Uh, okay. Combat
1: damage by creatures you control can't be prevented. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you remembered.
1: The reason um, I remember I remember because it the came boat. up with glacial chasm.
0: Yeah, that interaction was so sick to witness. Mm-hmm. uh Also legendary. Oh like, sure. Come yeah. on. No, like not not, not against you, but yeah. like What the heck? Um what it does it doesn't
1: have trample because otherwise it wouldn't have the uh blocks.
0: Yeah. it has like pseudo trample, whatever. Alright. If you get this, I will legitimately pay you $5. Yeah. The last card in my sideboard was one copy of Enter the God Eternals.
1: Okay, War of the Spark Sorcery. Okay. Five mana. Okay. Two black, black, blue. Uh, deals four damage to any target. You gain four life. You mill four cards. And then you amass four.
0: I'll pay you two fifty. <laughs> what?
1: Two blue, blue, black.
0: Oh, okay. Deal four damage to target creature.
1: Oh.
0: And you gain that much life.
1: So if damage is, if like one damage is presented, prevented, you only gain three.
0: Correct, and very relevant that it does not hit planeswalkers. I would have loved to snipe some fairies with this. Yeah, one.
1: I really thought it would hit players and planeswalkers. But I guess it's not a red yeah. spell. No.
0: And and a mass four, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's my sideboard. You got you got most of it. That Wait, was pretty
1: good. Was I right about you milling four? Or is it Target, target player. player. Uh, target player.
0: Uh, I guess I guess I'll give you a buck. How's that? Okay. Alright. <laughs> Sounds good.